0: This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.
1: All right. Welcome to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern on KABC. This is Tagore. I'll be sitting in for Matt today. We have a great show. We have Rod Fujita of the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome to the show, Rod. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks, Tagore. Nice to be here. Um, now, Rod, you are the Director of Research and Development for the Oceans Program at the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about the fund and your role there?
0: Sure. Uh, The Environmental Defense Fund is a a big international nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting the environment and to improving the welfare of people all over the place. Um, We use law, science and economics to develop some durable solutions to these pretty gnarly issues. Um, And we have four big initiatives, one on climate change mitigation. Uh, One on health, um, one on restoring uh, ecosystems and the oceans program, which I co-founded about 30 years ago and is now about 100 people. So my job now is to provide scientific and technical support to um, all of these talented advocates for the ocean um, who are deployed in 11 geographies around the world, trying to make uh, ocean biodiversity uh, better. And to provide better jobs and um, better food security for millions of people.
1: Amazing, and, and you're a scientist by training, is that correct?
0: Yeah, I trained as a marine ecologist. That's right.
1: Uh, before we jump in, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you went, you know, from being in a PhD program to working for the Environmental Defense Fund?
0: Sure. Yeah, I actually started a little earlier than that when I was in college. Um, I thought ecology was the key to saving the world. You know, I, I came of age in the 70s and Earth Day was in the air. There's a lot of buzz. And so, me I mean, a lot of my friends got all excited about that. And um, so I studied ecology. I got a fellowship after college we went to Japan and um, uh, studied how to grow marine organisms because I thought that would also be a good way to save the planet, feed millions of people. And... <laughs> After that fellowship, I learned a lot, but one of the major lessons I learned was how ignorant I was and how little <laughs> science. So I decided to go to graduate school, get the PhD, you know, be a little more patient, grow up a little bit. And um after so I was fascinated when I was in Japan at how fast seaweeds could grow. It was just remarkable. Um and then I found out all the amazing things that you can do with seaweed, because in Japan, it's huge, right? It's not, not so much here in America, yeah. but in Japan and throughout Asia, seaweed is huge. So I came back full of um, excitement about learning more about seaweed. And so I dedicated my PhD research at, at Woods Hole in trying to understand how seaweeds work and you know where they need to grow well, what kind of factors control their growth and distribution. And then the energy crisis hit. You're too young to remember this, but um, I'm older than I look. <laughs> okay, well, all right. 1978, maybe you were alive. <laughs> but uh, 1978, 79, uh, the energy crisis hit, and um, oil prices skyrocketed because the you know OPEC uh, put an embargo on oil, and so everybody was scurrying around trying to find new ways to produce energy. Right. And so we could avoid those long gas lines and wearing our sweaters and turning our thermostats down or anything. So um, the government was giving out huge wads of money to scientists to try to figure this problem out. And uh, my lab got some of that to see whether we could grow seaweeds um, to make biofuel and, um, We had, a, I thought, a better idea. We pushed back and said, hey, you know, we can do that, but we can also use wastewater uh, as as an input to this, right? So we could grow the seaweed, sure. We could also clean up the wastewater in the process so you get kind of a twofer. And then we thought, wow, wait a minute, we can also grow shellfish in here and produce a food stream, right? And we can use the seaweed to do the polishing step at the end so we at the end of this project we had created this sort of ecosystem-based waste recycling fuel producing food producing little machine and <laughs> it, it kind of worked beyond our wildest expectations and we did all those things that we said it would uh, it produced food it produced seaweed um, with zero pollution and zero inputs because all of it was wastewater and sunlight. So um, I got really excited about that. I decided I didn't want to really be a pure scientist anymore. I wanted to do stuff like that, you know, solve problems using science. But um, after I finished my PhD, the job market was terrible. All that funding dried up because the price of oil dropped again and everybody lost interest in series and biofuel. Um, It was amazingly fast collapse of interest. (laughs) and uh, I could not find a good job. So I wandered around being a postdoc and had a lot of fun studying coral reefs in Florida and studying rock intertidal systems in Oregon. Um, But then I saw this ad for a scientist at Environmental Defense Fund to work on climate change. And I thought, wow, this is a place where I can actually fulfill my lifelong dream of doing something to help the planet. So I signed up with them, and I haven't looked back since.
1: Well, I, I think that's a good, uh, good you know, that's an amazing story and a good point to take a break. Uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter on KABC, and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. You're listening to Uniting Heal America with Matt Matter on KBC. This is Tagore. I'm sitting with Rod Fujita, of the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, welcome back. So before we took a break, Rod, you were telling us a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, as a scientist and how you ended up at the Environmental Defense Fund, kind of working to combat climate change and create, help create a sustainable environment. Um, obviously, there's a lot of attention surrounding climate change, um, but I'm not sure for many people, including myself and our listeners, really understand the interplay between the climate, our climate, and our oceans. Can you, you know, t- speak a little bit to how raising temperatures are impacting the ocean?
0: Absolutely, Tigor. Well, first, let me say that it makes me very sad that we have come this far and done so little on climate change because when I first joined the fight in uh, 1990, we had a chance, we had a very good chance to prevent uh, this really um, (laughs) terrible onslaught of wildfires and flooding and storms and little coral islands being swamped by sea-level rise water systems getting salinized. I mean, we're living in a world of our own creation, unfortunately, and we had a chance to prevent it. Back in the 90s, I tried hard, my colleagues and I tried to pass legislation in the US, we worked all the international conferences, we hammered out international agreements. But as you know, <laughs> It didn't work, and I, I feel this tremendous sense of loss. And um, also, uh, it energizes me to try to do something about it as I get ready to end my career. You know, it's been thirty years; I'm about ready to retire, but I don't want to retire until I do something positive because this is one of the greatest injustices ever perpetrated um, by humanity. You know, against future generations, against current generations that are living through this preventable disaster so you feel
1: um, like we're past the point of no return or um, there's still progress
0: that can be made there's still progress to be made and that's why i'm fighting so hard right now and i hope everybody listening will take heart and not be um depressed we there's still a lot we can do there's still time but we really have to pull out all the stops now uh we have no time to do around that's for sure so you asked about the, the interplay between the atmosphere and the ocean and climate change. And it's, it's complex in some ways, but the simple answer is that the ocean has been saving us from even worse climate change. The ocean is the world's largest reservoir of carbon, and it's been sucking all of that. Well, not all, a big fraction of the carbon dioxide that we've been pulling out of the earth in the form of oil and natural gas. I read
1: about a third. Is that right? It, it, it take, yeah. sucks in about a third of the carbon emissions?
0: Well, this is part of the story to go So it used to suck out a lot more. right? Yeah. And now it's getting kind of filled up with carbon and the processes that in the ocean that are taking up the carbon are starting to saturate. And also, in the meantime, humans have been busily destroying um, those pathways. So, mangrove forests are really good at taking up carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in soil. But we've cut down a lot of them, right? And destroyed them and, and um, used them to grow shrimp or turn them into charcoal. Um, the the seagrass meadows of the world are really good at sucking down carbon too and putting it in the soil. But we've been wrecking them, too, by um, adding wastewater into nearshore areas, reducing light penetration, which, you know, is really, really bad for seagrasses. And, you know, running over them with boat propellers is a major cause of seagrass loss. Wetlands, same thing. Wetlands are great at sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into peat that lasts thousands of years. Great carbon sequestration pathway. But what have we been doing? We're farming them. We're digging them up. We dredged them. You know? <laughs> San Francisco, where I live, lost like 90% of its wetlands. Right. So we, we're doing a great job destroying the ocean's capacity to store carbon and save us from climate change. The ocean keeps chugging away. Anyway, it's big and it has huge capacity, but it is suffering and its its capacity to save us from climate change is not unlimited. As you can see, the ocean's warming up, right? It took a long time. You imagine trying to, you know, watching your beer warm up, right? After you take it out of the fridge, it takes a while, right? You can <laughs> a glass of beer to warm up. But imagine the entire ocean, all that liquid with all that heat retention capacity. It takes decades for it to heat up, but it has been decades. It's been a century, actually. So the ocean is warming up, even the deep layers of the water uh, ocean are warming up That's starting to impact the circulation of the ocean, which is a major way that the ocean sucks down carbon and puts it into the deep water. So the ocean basically has acted like a big flywheel on the planetary climate system, slowing it down. If it weren't for the ocean, we'd be fried by now. So the ocean has been staving off climate change by absorbing carbon and absorbing uh heat but not without effect coral reefs are getting fried right the coral reefs are kind of the sensitive child the canary in the coal mine they're very sensitive to temperature change and they're bleaching by the millions um, ever since the 1980s
1: this may be somewhat of a uh, oversimplistic question but is the warming in the ocean Coming from the increase in climate or from the absorption of the carbon emissions?
0: It's the increase in temperature uh, in the atmosphere that's related to the emissions of greenhouse gases that are accumulating in the atmosphere. But there's another thing going on that's also insidious. Um, In addition to the warming, which is killing off coral reefs and causing sea levels to rise because water expands when it heats up um, and ice is melting right so those are those are the effects of warming it's also causing fish to move around quite a bit away from the tropics toward the poles that's really dislocating and impacting millions and millions of people in the tropics which again another huge injustice right the countries that are responsible for climate change uh, the industrialized countries mostly in the temperate zone are benefiting from the movements of these organisms because their fisheries are getting more diverse and more productive, right? Including in the Arctic. The countries that had very little to do with causing climate change and are still not emitting very much greenhouse gases and are underdeveloped, are losing their marine resources and biodiversity. So um, again, a, a terrible thing that we really have to write. But is there oh, a way? I, mention five I, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, to No, go gonna, ahead. In addition to all the effects of warming, um, the carbon dioxide that we've been spewing in the atmosphere is also dissolving into the ocean. So the ocean is helping stave that off as well. But it's causing the ocean's pH to decline. It's becoming a little more acidic every year. And of course, that's terrible. For mollusks and coral reefs and other marine creatures that um, need to make shells out of calcium carbonate because it's very sensitive to pH.
1: So, is there a way to increase the amount of carbon that the ocean is able to absorb from our atmosphere, but at the same time curb the negative impact that that absorption has?
0: Um, this is one of the reasons I still get up and go to work every day. It's because the ocean is very, very resilient. And if we back off some of the bad things we're doing to mangroves and to seagrasses and to salt marshes, and if we leave more big fish in the ocean, if we let the whales come back, um, there's a chance that we can restore some of the ocean's capacity to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, slow down climate change. and benefit from all the wonderful things that would happen if there were more mangrove forests and more seagrass meadows and more coral reefs and more big fish in the ocean and more whales swimming around. Right. We can also grow a lot more seaweed presently far less than 1% of the ocean surface is farmed for seaweed and seaweed is a marvelous thing to grow for a number of reasons. One. It's one of the fastest photosynthesizers on the planet. It can pull carbon out of the water faster than any other organism. Um, And that means, as you lower the carbon dioxide in the water, that means that more carbon dioxide flows from the atmosphere in the water. So it pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere under certain conditions very rapidly. It puts it into seaweed bodies, which are extremely useful as food. They're highly nutritious. Uh, They're used to make billions of dollars worth of products like cosmetics and toothpaste and chocolate pudding and all kinds of things. You can turn them into biogas um, to create a carbon neutral fuel, clean burning carbon neutral fuel. Uh, They're even useful as uh, soil conditioners and crop stimulants. So if we use seaweed as fertilizer instead of chemical fertilizers, we could A, help crops grow better with less Carbon dioxide emissions, right? And we might be able to reduce the nitrogen oxide emissions, which are powerful greenhouse gases from agriculture.
1: All right, you're listening to Uniting Heal America with Matt Matter. We got to take a break. We'll be back in a bit. All right, we're back on Uniting Heal America with Matt Matter on kbc We have Rod Fujita of the Environmental Defense Fund on the show. Welcome back. Uh, you know, before the break, Rod, you were talking about the amazing impact that seaweed has in helping, um, you know, reduce some of the negative implications of uh, climate change. Um, you know, kind of d- diving a little bit more more into that. You know, it would seem like seaweed would be a very easy thing to kind of put more of in the ocean. You know what? Is that is that accurate? Is that or you know um you know why isn't it being harvested more?
0: Yeah, it, it does seem like it would be really easy, you know, it's plant-like, it requires very little input, it doesn't need much care or maintenance. Here's the thing though, um a lot of seaweed is being grown, just it's, it's all in near shore waters, and it's all by mostly all by very small uh, scale operators. So these are like family farms in the Philippines, or some of these little patch of water in Indonesia. Uh, when you add all those little operators together, it creates like, you know, lots and lots of seaweed, a lot of people in Chile and all over the world are harvesting seaweed as well as farming it. Right. So that's, that's what makes up the global seaweed market right now, supply, uh, of of seaweed. But, um, there's, and so those near shore areas, it may, it's easy to grow seaweed there because the water's shallow and you can just put a stick in the in the mud and uh, tie a little spoiling to it and it'll grow. <laughs> you don't really have to do much with it until it's harvest time. So it is pretty easy. But here's the chance. So the near shore areas are getting more and more crowded and they're polluted and they're becoming less and less suitable for a growing seaweed. Now, seaweed can reverse some of that stuff. But... Um, it's still true that we use the nearshore areas for lots of things there's lots of fishing going on there's ship traffic there's all kinds of competing uses so the big potential for growing seaweed for the purposes of something like taking carbon out of the atmosphere which will require millions of square kilometers of seaweed farms that's way too much to put in the near shore it has to be the open ocean and growing stuff in the open ocean is challenging the open ocean is very hostile. It's high energy. There's huge waves. There's very strong currents. These things make growing conditions pretty good, but it's it's really hard on infrastructure. So um, the world's some of the world's best engineers are working on this problem, and they're being very creative and coming up with very clever ways to grow seaweed under these very harsh conditions. So there's some promise there.
1: And when we're talking about seaweed, you know, I think I picture what I have with my sushi, but are we are we, you know, is it is it that is it a specific type of seaweed? Is it kelp? You know, what what are we looking at specifically um as as a plant to absorb the um carbon emissions?
0: Yeah. Uh well, there's all kinds of seaweeds. There's reds, browns, and greens. And within those three categories, there's like thousands of species. Um the So we're really talking about all of them because all of them can take carbon out of the atmosphere, but some of them are better at sequestering it than others. So sequestration, if I didn't explain already, is taking up carbon from the atmosphere and locking it away for hundreds or thousands of years. That's what we mean by sequestration. So you can imagine when you grow that um, seaweed, which is called porphyra, uh, it's a red seaweed that is turned into to nori, which you wrap around your sushi. That's really good at taking up carbon, but when you eat it, you turn it back into carbon dioxide and you sail it back into the atmosphere. So it doesn't do a heck of a lot in terms of sequestration, right? Um, on the other hand, if you if you get Macrocystis, which is the giant kelp that grows here off California, it's a big brown alga, grows about a foot a day. Fantastic at absorbing carbon, and really, really good at um, sequestering that carbon for a while within its kelp fronds and stipes. And if you turn that into uh, uh, alginate, which is a common use for that kind of kelp, it'll live. The carbon will stay around for longer without going back into the atmosphere. Right, and if you turn it into a soil conditioner, it'll live even longer in the soil, maybe for centuries. So we need to think about the full range of seaweeds. They all do different things. They're valuable for different purposes. So they all are great at absorbing carbon, but some of them are better at sequestering carbon than others.
1: You know, I've read about carbon offsetting, and usually that's done in the you know context of you know planting trees, and you know, are are you aware of initiatives being done with uh, you know? growing seaweed or uh, expanding um, the marine plant life to serve those purposes?
0: Definitely. Lots of people are trying to figure this one out. It's kind of challenging because, you know, it's relatively easy to measure the carbon going into a tree and then down into the roots and soil because you can see it <laughs> and you can stick your probes into the tree and in the soil really easily. Imagine trying to do that in the ocean, right? Um, the, the seaweed doesn't ha- doesn't have any roots. It's not really in the soil. Um, and so you have to measure all these rates of carbon transfer from the atmosphere into the ocean, from the ocean into the seaweed, from the seaweed out to the bacteria that are surrounding the seaweed and heating up the carbon uh, into the body of the, of the seaweed. And then where does the carbon go after you harvest it? So you have to measure all those things. It's much more challenging than measuring carbon flow in a forest, which is why. The carbon offset market is much more mature for planting forests than it is for seaweed, but we are working on it. And it's going to be really important to solidify that science. That's one of the things that EDF is working on right now uh, to try to get really good data, really good models, and some kind of scientific consensus around how to measure this in seaweed so that we can start up a robust, incredible, high integrity. Market for these offsets. We want to make sure to buyers of these credits that they actually are removing as much carbon as we say they are. And that requires data and science.
1: Yeah. And it would seem like there are certain advantages to, uh, you know, promoting seaweed as opposed to other sorts of plant life because it grows quickly. That's at least that's my impression. You know, it's not like a tree that's taking 10, 20 years to grow. I would imagine that within a relatively short period of time, you could get it to a place where it's efficiently absorbing carbon emissions. Is is that fair to say?
0: Yes, that's one of the reasons why so many are excited about seaweed right now, because they do grow super fast, much faster than trees, and they take up tremendous amounts of carbon. The thing about seaweeds, though, is that they're leakier than trees. So trees are pretty good at holding onto the carbon that they absorb by making wood and roots, um, but seaweeds are really bad at holding onto carbon, and so they leak a lot of it out in the ocean. So we need to figure out ways to capture all that carbon and do something constructive with it. On the other hand, seaweeds are produce a whole lot more useful products, right, than other ways of sequestering carbon. So you can get food, you can get alginate, you can get carrageen you can get pachypollides. You can even, there's some evidence you can feed seaweeds to cows and that reduces their methane emissions, which would be a great way to reduce uh, the effects of climate change and the rate of climate change.
1: So when you think, you know, if you're someone with a lot of resources and you're trying to make sure the return on your investment is the most, you know, efficient you're ma- trying to maximize your ROI is there a particular initiative or you know low hanging fruit you see um, that someone should consider directing their energy towards to get the most bang for their buck to you know kind of reduce carbon emissions what are the easiest things for us to tackle right now
0: well, you're talking to a guy who spent his entire career like not making any money. So I'm not the right person to tell you about ROI. But theoretically, <laughs> um, the established markets are for food, for alginates, for fico uh, And so those are already there. They already pay certain prices. Um, they're not growing that fast. And seaweed is not super valuable, you know for those purposes but there's um, some promising developments in the processing field uh, wherein some companies are figuring out how to um, isolate pure protein and pure nutrients and pure vitamins and minerals from seaweeds, which are very valuable so um, if you're an investor or a businessman you might want to look at some of those products if you want to increase the roi of course, that requires more investment. So, who knows about the profitability right now? But we expect those markets to expand. We expect costs to go down, and therefore, the ROI and profits should increase over time.
1: Yeah, I think maybe I misspoke. I was kind of meaning just in terms of an analogy, not not investment in terms of profitability, but you know, return on investment in the sense of uh, the most efficient way of reducing um, carbon emissions. You know, are there specific things, be it seaweed or, you know, kind of reducing certain practices that you see as the most immediately feasible things that we can do to kind of drive down uh, carbon emissions?
0: Yeah. Think, think of the solution set as sort of a, a, a target, a darts target in a bar, right? So there's this red circle in the middle. Those are the no regret strategies. That's what we should be doing right now. Because um, they remove some carbon from the atmosphere, maybe not as much as other solutions, but they generate huge number of benefits. So there's no regrets. You know, we should stop cutting mangroves down immediately. We should save as many salt marshes and seagrass meadows as we can immediately. We should restore seagrass forests immediately.
1: All right, we got to take a break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern on KABC. We'll be right back. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter on KABC. This is Tabor. I'm sitting with Matt. We got Rod Bujita of the Environmental Defense Fund with us today. Um, Rod, before the break, we were talking about you know the um, really amazing impact uh seaweed and seaweed development is having on as a kind of avenue for reducing climate change. Um you know. Before we kind of switch topics, are there any really emerging technologies that you're excited about that you see in the immediate you know, five-year, 10-year time frame, or even sooner that you see as having a real kind of um, quantum impact on, on our ability to combat climate change?
0: Yeah, well, let's stick with seaweeds for a minute. You know, yeah, um, I think when ocean engineers figure out how to grow seaweed in offshore environments, that's going to result in a quantum leap because the open ocean is vast and there's huge areas that are suitable for growing seaweeds if we could only get them out there. (laughs) So that would be a game changer for um, seaweed as a way to um, suck up atmospheric carbon dioxide and produce many, many, many other valuable products for for human welfare uh, and economic development. Um, I think that, you know, other game-changing interventions will require quite a bit more research. You know, we're maybe at a threshold for seaweed, right? I I think within a few years, people will figure out how to grow it uh, in offshore, because we already know how to grow it near shore and it's not that hard. Also under consideration are other interventions that may have greater potential to um, take carbon out of the atmosphere, but come with much higher risks, right? So things like um, uh, putting alkalinity into the ocean to chemically alter it um, is, it could have a big effect on carbon, but it also is pretty risky and unfortunately irreversible. So, if if you think back to this sort of metaphor of, you know, uh, a dart target with you know the bullseye with no regrets policies that are really Mm -hmm. great to do no matter what they do for carbon because we'll benefit tremendously from them. There's another tranche or another outer ring of solutions that might bring more carbon benefit but have higher ecological risk, and then there's still outer circles of solutions that. Might have gigantic, you know, benefits for climate change, but are super risky and kind of irreversible. And we, if they don't work, we may have lots of regrets. So Im- we we'll try to present it to policymakers.
1: Yeah, and I imagine just from even even if the science is there or the you know the know-how, some of these issues have uh, you know logistical barriers because they require coordination amongst various countries and different political systems. Um, you know. so that's probably another set of challenges. That's right, and,
0: and that's right. And some of them, um, you remember, we're talking about disrupting a very complex system, right? I mean, climate change itself is a disruption of a complex planetary, social and ecological system. And it's resulted in some predictable effects, but many other very unpredictable effects. Same thing with solutions. (laughs) Some solutions are smaller disruptions of the system and are are likely to have more predictable effects. Some of these bigger interventions, like putting sulfide in the atmosphere to cool the planet down, you know, um, may be more disruptive because the scale is larger and um, the disruptions may have ripple effects that we can't even anticipate right now. So it creates more risk and uncertainty.
1: Amazing. So, you know, I want to pivot for a second because I know you have a lot of experience in this area. um, And I think it's something that would be interesting uh, to our listeners and, you know, frankly, interesting to me. Um, And and that's sustainable fishing um, and the environmental impact of our current uh, fishing practices. Um, You know, I've, I've, I've read Uh, that the, our current, our current fishing practices, if, you know, they continue or likely to result in significantly overfished areas over the next decade or so, um, you know, can you, can you speak a little bit towards the state of our current, uh, fishing practices and, and some of the concerns we need to be mindful of?
0: Yeah. Let me start by saying that, um. If you only look at the headlines, um, you would think that all fisheries are terrible and um, they're all going to end soon. That's really not the case. Um, If you get the bigger picture and you have a chance to travel to a lot of countries like I have and work directly with fisheries, it's a much um, more optimistic picture. And I think fisheries reform has been uh, quite a success story, actually. You would you wouldn't get that, you know, (laughs) from reading the newspaper. But there's a lot of success stories that don't get reported um, because I guess, you know, reporters are not that interested in it. But, you know, um, the the global state of fisheries is better than it was 20 years ago. Um, In the United States in particular, we've almost ended the practice of overfishing, which is remarkable, right, over 20 years. Um and we're on a trajectory. We're one of the best managed uh, fishery fishing countries in the world now, and we're a leading light that other countries are looking uh, toward for guidance. And so, and you know other countries have their own expertise to lend. Uh, Japan just passed a major reform, the, the biggest reform in 70 years of its fisheries law, and they're getting really serious about conserving fishery resources. Uh, Japan, will not only have a positive impact on its own fisheries, but it's a leading fishing nation, and it's a powerful voice in international um, fishery management organizations that span the entire Pacific, as is China, which also just completed a whole lot of pilot studies that show um, real promise in getting their fisheries under control. So um, again, you're not going to read about this paper is one of the reasons I wrote my book, Heal the Ocean, is to tell some of these success stories that people don't get so that all of us activists don't give up you know, in <laughs> despair. Um, so um, there's, there's a way to go with fisheries, but I think uh, we're on the right trajectory. We know what the solutions are. We know that fisheries do better when you do science and you assess stocks and you manage based on that science. We even know how to help fisheries become more resilient to climate change because fisheries are used to variation, right? Like farming... Um, fisheries really are kind of dependent on nature. You know, they're going around chasing fish and uh, they have to change their tactics and strategies as the fish change. Climate change is making the fish change their patterns in different ways, but still it's change. So fisheries are kind of um, well positioned, I think, to become resilient to climate change. There's some gnarly problems to fix, like what happens when fish stocks move from one jurisdiction to another and uh, you know are governed by treaties that are not designed to deal with climate change effects we're already seeing signs that these are breaking down you know when fish move from one country to another um, there's incentives to overfish uh, the stock in the in the trailing edge right before it leaves and there's no regulations at the leading edge of the chain so people are catching this going. What do we do with it? And sometimes they discard it. This is happening off the East Coast of the United States, for example. So we're trying to come up with uh, new governance strategies and management measures that are more flexible and allow people to adjust to these relatively rapid changes in fish distribution abundance that are being induced by climate change. And that's kind of the leading edge of fisheries reform. Now, the rest of it is well-known, well-documented it's just a matter of scaling it up and putting the necessary resources uh, into it, so that less developed countries can um, establish their own science-based fishery management programs.
1: And so, when we talk about these changes in in fishing practices and you know, kind of management plans to um, you know prevent overfishing, are these are these profitable interventions or or, or are they just interventions that we need to do in order to um, mitigate the downstream negative consequences.
0: This is one of the beautiful things about working in fisheries. You know, a lot of times you just have to say no to a destructive practice, right? And that that causes job loss, that causes economic losses. But many environmental um, problems are amenable to win-win solutions if you search hard enough. You know, the easy answer is always just stop doing it, right? Or you're doing it because you're greedy. But it's usually a lot more nuanced than that. If you bother to ask farmers and ranchers and fishermen and miners and other industries why they're, you know, doing things that are wrecking the environment, they have pretty good reasons sometimes. and And often it's in response to the nature of the regulations they're operating under. Um, or to price incentives, you know, the economic imperative. So, um, when you diagnose a problem deeply, sometimes you can see a win win solution. And that's the case for fisheries. So, if you assume that, you know, fishermen are overfishing and using dynamite and such just because they're greedy, then the solution is to just stop it. And then they would lose their jobs and they wouldn't make any more money. And the world would suffer because fish. Is one of the best way, best, you know, most nutritious forms of protein and micronutrients with the lowest carbon footprint of any protein, right, on the planet. Way better than cows and pigs and chickens. So, what do you do? Well, we asked, why are you doing these things? And we found out that it's because nobody is sure about how many fish they can catch. And so they're competing with each other to maximize their catch often it's a it's a tragedy of the commons in some cases and so in these cases we've been able to introduce a solution that allows fishermen to make more money at the same time as it conserves the stock better because it creates a stake in the future revenues that can flow from a conserved stock instead of getting all the value from just dead fish caught today so it changes the mentality from short-term exploitation to long-term stewardship and it's like magic. Uh, these people turn around and the fisheries turn around and become sustainable.
1: I want to go back to that because I think it may have been lost on on some people. Is it, you know, what what again is the, the solution to this tragedy of the commons that you know you sometimes see in overfishing?
0: It's really to provide fishermen security. You know, all humans need to know where their next meal is coming from where they're gonna sleep that night, right? It's, it's a core human need. Fishermen are, in, a lot of fishermen are not secure. They don't, because the open ocean is a commons and there's no property rights and nobody knows who is gonna catch what, it creates insecurity. And so the solution is to create security by giving people who don't have rights, rights. <laughs> uh, rights are power in, in the society and fishermen have no power so when you give them rights when you give them tenure uh some of this is replicating models that are thousands of years old we're just rediscovering the wisdom oh, that indigenous gosh. people had in creating territories right for fishing that you would exclude other people from um these kinds of interventions create the incentives that people need to become stewards Rather than short-term exploiters of resources.
1: And when you say rights, what do you? What kind of rights are you referring to?
0: Depends on the context. So in eastern Indonesia, there's a long tradition of spatial rights, um, and as and and traditional um, stewardship of those areas under traditional law. So the path of least resistance, rather than impose new rights that come from the west, is to just go with the flow and establish formal rights around those traditional um, marine areas. So that's a spatial right in Chile um, in the 70s, spatial rights as well. Um, in industrialized fisheries, it's more about sharing the catch, giving each fisherman a percentage share of the total allowable catch. So we can design these things um, in a way that is tailored to each specific social and cultural and economic context.
1: And for Consumers like myself who go to Whole Foods and we see, you know, farm-raised, pollock, you know, wild, you know, is, do you have any general recommendations that people should be mindful of when they're buying, you know, food from the ocean um, and trying to, you know, encourage a more sustainable fishing practice?
0: The good news for consumers is that the certification of seaweed has come a long way. So now you can go in your grocery store and immediately see which ones have the little blue Marine Stewardship Council fish icon, which are Fair Trade certified, which um, have a, a, a green rating or a yellow rating from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch programs. These are all highly reliable um, sources of information for consumers big buyers like Walmart and Costco are also using these same rating systems to make sure that their um, seafood supply chains are getting more and more sustainable.
1: Well, that's super interesting. And I think those are great uh, resources that consumers and people like myself will look to when they go to the supermarket. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Rod, very uh, informative and educational. Um, I think we're, we're out of time uh, today, but if, our audience wants to learn more about what you're working on and what the Environmental um, Defense Fund's working on, are there any websites or resources that they can access?
0: Yeah, they can check out um, our website edf.org and um, you can look at edfish.org for a bunch of blogs on ocean fisheries, harvest sequestration and all the things we discussed. Been a pleasure being on your show. Thanks for having me on.
1: All right. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern and KABC.